Well, Father, that is our desire every Sunday. That's our desire every day, but especially even now for such a time as this, our desire is to continue to exalt you because you love to receive the praise of your people. You love to hear the worship of your people. And so, Father, that is our intent, that is our desire, and also we need your help to do it. Uh, Because apart from you, as we are fully aware of, we can do nothing. And so, Father, as we transition in our worship, not only from exalting you through singing, but now I pray that we would exalt you through listening. I pray that we would exalt you and worship you by receptive ears, by a receptive heart, a heart that is willing to receive and to act on what you tell us. So, Father, right now, I just pray that you would, by your Spirit, enable us to receive all that you desire for us to understand more fully and all that you desire to, for us to, to walk in obedience to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, last Sunday we uh, concluded our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and um, I, I, I was kind of just reflecting on that even more again, going, man, we went through that for two and a half years. I mean, I know some pastors have the ability to go, I think John MacArthur went through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, for like 13 years, I think it was. So we won't do that. Um, but uh, we went for about two and a half years and kind of concluded our study. And perhaps you're wondering at that point last week, or maybe you're wondering even now, what's next? Where are we going next? And maybe you're not actually asking that or wondering that, but I'm going to tell you anyways, as if you are wondering that, um, you might notice up front here, there's some indication of where we're going next. Um, in fact, all the way, starting today, all the way through the summer, leading up into Labor Day weekend, we are going to be going through two topical series. The first topical series is going to be a, a, a kind of a short topical study through the Ten Commandments. And then the second series, we're going to go through the fruits of the Spirit. And so that's going to kind of bring us all the way through before we start our next exegetical study or a, a study through another book of the Bible. Of course, we're still studying Scripture, obviously, but it's going to be some kind of sections of Scripture that are kind of pulled out. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the Ten Commandments, I was kind of wondering, I wonder what people are thinking when they're like, yeah, let's study the Ten Commandments. Woo! Right? You know what I'm saying? Ten Commandments. Even that word commandment probably doesn't have a great, it doesn't resonate on the ears for us Western 21st century uh, individualists because uh, we, we, we don't like rules. We don't like commandments. We like freedom. That's the things we want to talk about, not commandments that tell us what to do and dictate how we are to live. So why in the world are we talking about ten commandments? I mean, what, what benefit does that potentially have in my life? In fact, I thought the ten commandments were old school because they're Old Testament, right? And wasn't the old covenant replaced by a new covenant in Jesus Christ? So does, is that even relevant to us? Is that even applicable to my life today? Is there any benefit whatsoever in taking 10 weeks to study 10 commands or 10 rules that God has set forth to his people Israel? Well, of course I think there's benefit. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be going through it, right? I think there's actually great benefit in taking time to study the Ten Commandments. I mean, statistically, uh, and I, I don't think that's as necessarily true of this church, but who knows? I was even thinking to myself when I was reviewing the Ten Commandments, I'll be honest, even as your pastor, I was like, oh, 
Can I just whip them off the top of my head right now? Hmm. I think I can get most of them. Not necessarily in the same order, but I can get most of them. And so uh, one benefit or one purpose in doing this is to kind of replace our ignorance with truth, to, to replace kind of maybe our, uh, our awareness of something with a, a greater awareness and a deeper understanding of what God has set forth. But the, really a primary benefit as to why I believe it's worth taking the time to study these commands is, first of all, they tell us, the commands tell us how to love God and how to love one another. I forgot my little clicker. Can, Mary, can you just do that for me? I forgot my little clicker. Sorry about that. They tell us how to love God, and they tell us how to love one another. You see that G- Jesus oftentimes, on multiple occasions in his ministry, he identified the greatest of all commands. I mean, if you were to think of like, how do I summarize 645 commands that he's given in Scripture, what is the kind of the, the summary trump command of all commands? And he says, he actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, really, which is really a summary of all of his commands, and it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus says that's the greatest of all commands, to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And of course, the second greatest command that he acknowledges kind of closely comes on the heels of that first command, and that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the two greatest commands that, hey, thanks, brother. Thanks. These are the two greatest commands that Jesus says. If, you're like, if you want to understand what's, uh, what really matters to God, uh, if you want to understand all, why he's given all these commands, if you want to understand like a kind of a summation of everything he gives to his people, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. question is, how do we actually do that? What, what, what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might? What, what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? I mean, that sounds short and pithy, right? That sounds very easy to remember, but what does it actually look like? Well, this is where the Ten Commandments come in. Because the Ten Commandments are an elaboration of the two primary commandments. In other words, Jesus says, let me just give you these overarching themes that are very important, but let me just give further explanation as to what I'm actually talking about. This is where the Ten Commandments come in. They they tell us what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, and it tells us what it means and how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we see that these Ten Commands or these Ten uh, Rules for Life are given by God so that his people, which includes us, would know how to properly relate to him and how to properly relate to one another. I appreciate what J.I. Packer says in relationship to the commandments. He says, commandment keeping is the only true way to love the Father and the Son. And it is the only true way to love one's neighbor. So even J.I. Packer, who's kind of has, has had a long legacy, he's with the Lord now, but he has a long legacy, left a, really established a, a profound footprint in the theological world. He even says this commandment keeping is of kind of first importance. And so as we go through these 10 commands, 
we're going to see that God shows us how we are to relate to him, how we are to worship him, how we are to properly love and serve one another. And you'll see that the first four commands are all about our relationship with God, and the final six commands are all about how we relate to one another horizontally. So we see, ultimately, this is one large benefit or significant benefit of why this study matters. But there's a second reason that I think is important to include, and that is this. The commands tell us about God. God's commands tell us about God. They tell us what he's like. They tell us the things that matter most to God. They, they reveal his character. And so if you were to ask this question, because maybe you don't know, what, what is God like? How can I know what God is like? A, a proper or one, of, one proper response would be, well, what do, you, what do you see in the Ten Commandments? What do you observe in the Ten Commandments? In other words, when you observe the Ten Commandments, when you take the time to understand them, you realize, I know God more fully because he reveals who he is by his commands. But thirdly, we see another benefit, and that is this, that God's commands are the pathway to abundant living. God's commands are the pathway to abundant living. Remember what Jesus said in John 10.10. He says, I have come to give you what? Life. We all want to live, right? I've come to give you life and to live it fully. I want you to live it abundantly. In other words, God's commands show us What we see is that God's commands show us how to experience this full life or this abundant life, really the life that we were created to experience. I love what David says, or he he acknowledges oftentimes all throughout Psalm 119 in regards to God's law, in regards to God's commands. He says that God's law keeps him pure. He says that it keeps us from sin. We see that it gives us strength, that it gives life, that it gives hope, that it gives comfort in affliction, that it gives understanding, that it is a guide for our lives. It gives wisdom. It gives peace. If you're wondering, does God's commands, does God's law have any benefit for my life? The answer is an emphatic yes. There are so many ways in which we, we gain, that we benefit by not only understanding, not just by getting the kind of the content download, but also learning what it means to live it most practically in our lives. Here's the point. God loves you so much that he actually gives you rules. He, he gives you his law. Think about that for a moment. God loves you so much that he gives you rules. Now, I know that probably doesn't sound like, that seems to almost be a, contra, a contradiction in terms, right? You love me, so you give me rules. No, God loves you, to give, so he gives you rules not to suppress your life, not, not to ruin your life, not to be a killjoy in your life, not to make your life more difficult. That's not what he's doing. No, he gives you rules so that you gain your life. He gives you rules so that you might be filled with joy. Even as John says in 1 John chapter 5, he says his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, God's rules are actually good for us. We actually gain our life by them. Let me put it this way. 
Can you imagine a reality without any rules? Can, can, can you imagine a, a society without any laws or rules? Now, I know kids, oftentimes they might, they might hear something like this and go, that sounds amazing, right? Can you imagine a household where there's no rules? There's only one rule in this household, and that rule is there is no rules, right? I think there's some movies based around that whole concept too. But the fact is, you know, a kid might think, oh, that sounds so incredible. But in reality, and of course you parents know full well what that translates into the minds of kids and what that translates into the, maybe the chaos of your household without rules and, what, and if people can do whatever they want, that actually doesn't help them. Having, having nothing standing in the way or, or being able to live your life without any inhibition does not benefit you in the long run, nor does it benefit others around you. I mean, let's, get, let's just make this super practical so we can drive the point home, right? Can you imagine if there were no traffic laws? Some of you drive like there is none. I understand. Some of you don't realize you drive like there is none. If you go internationally on like mission trips, as I get to do at, at, at times, uh, it, it feels like there's no traffic laws when you're driving in these other, you know, other cultures. The irony is they don't get in hardly any accidents. We get in a lot of accidents called distracted driving maybe. I'm not sure what it is. But the fact is we have traffic laws so that it protects one another. In other words, there's an agreed upon or universal assumption that like, if you follow these rules, then everybody can drive safely. Right? And then when you violate these rules, then guess what? It's potentially detrimental to you and detrimental to those around you. Or let me ask you this other question, and this is more close to home, no pun intended, but can you imagine if there was no building codes for buildings and houses and stuff, right? Can you imagine if it was just kind of like, you know what, build it however you want. There are places like that around the world, right? And we see what happens when they're tested. Those buildings are tested by usually earthquakes or whatever else. They usually don't last. I grew up in Willow, Alaska. It was the land or the area of houses built without code. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so everybody kind of had their own version of what a, a house might look like. And so no one actually came. There was no permits to get. It was actually really refreshing in some ways. But on the other hand, it was just like, it was, it was kind of each to, the, to each their own. But there is a reason behind building codes. Or think about it this way, manufacturing. Can you imagine if Boeing, for example, said, you know what, build the plane however you want to each their own. Let's make it real subjective here. Do you think you'd feel comfortable flying in the skies on a Boeing or an Airbus? Probably not, because they'd be falling out of the sky left and right, even if they got into the sky. The point is this, rules are important. Rules are necessary for us to function in life. They are necessary for us to, to relate to one another in a very organized and loving manner. We cannot function without clear, universally accepted rules in life. In other words, true freedom does not come in the absence of rules. True freedom is really enjoying the benefits in doing what we are called to do. Jen Wilkins says it really well when she says rules show us how to live in relationships. 
In other words, rather than threaten relationship, rules enable our relationships. But as the book of Judges identifies for us, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, when everyone does what pleases themselves, the result is all forms of godlessness, uh, of judgment, uh, of destruction, and especially divisiveness. So the point I've kind of coming full circle on is this. God loves us so much he loves you so much that he actually gives you rules or he gives you these kind of what we call might refer to as boundaries to live by for our good. That's how we need to regard, that's how we need to think of God's law. They are for our good and so that we might better understand how we can relate both to him as well as to one another, even ourselves. Kevin DeYoung says it well when he says, these rules are for free people to stay free. Rules are given so that free people can stay free. But there's a fourth benefit I want to highlight for us this morning, and that is this. And it's really kind of a reminder, I think, that is crucial for for all of us, and that is to remember that God's grace always precedes God's commands. God's grace always precedes God's commands. In other words, God never tells us to do something that he hasn't already done first himself or that he hasn't already prepared the way for. Let me give you an example of this. When God gave Israel the commandments, he he didn't give it to them while they were in slavery, right? God didn't give the commandments to Israel. He's like, you know what? I know you've been enslaved to the Egyptians for 430 years. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a bunch of commands. And if you are able to obey these commands, then I'll deliver you. That's not what God does, right? No, what God does is this. He saves them. He says, I love you. I see your pain and I see your heartache. I'm going to deliver you. And after having been delivered, after being saved from its slavery, and after being blessed by me, then I'm going to give you rules to live by so that we can better function and, and live that abundant life that I've created you to live for. In other words, God says, I have freed you. Now this is how you stay free. I have delivered you. This is how you avoid falling back into slavery, either physically or spiritually. But you see, one of the, one of the, the most common ways our enemy, which is Satan, tries to distort the goodness of God and the deliverance of God is by encouraging a, a natural tendency we all have towards what we call legalism. You see, legalism are really those actions, those are, they are our attempts to make ourselves acceptable to God based on our own efforts. In other words, we make ourselves presentable to God and God saves us based on what we bring to the table and that is not actually what salvation is all about. God doesn't love you because of what you're able to do. God doesn't save you because you keep the rules. That's not what grace is. No, grace is God saying, I love you I will deliver you and I will show you how to live. In other words, a relationship with God begins with the understanding that he he already loves us, that he already loves you. He already 
desires to care for every need that you have. And having received this love, we in turn are called to obey his command. So, so what we see is that salvation is not a reward for our obedience. That's not what salvation is. It's not something we earn because we're really good at obeying the rules. No, salvation is the reason for our obedience. Salvation is the reason why we obey because we've already received the love of God. So our doing, or what we might call our commandment keeping, must be motivated from what Christ has already done for us. What he's already done for you. As John would say in 1 John 4.19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. We don't love and then therefore God loves us. We love only because he first loved us. Or Ephesians 4.32, we forgive, why? Because he first forgave us. So God does everything first, And then he says, now I want you to do what I've done for you. I've loved you, now I want you to love in return. I've saved you, now I want you to bring deliverance for other people. I forgave you, now I want you to be forgiving of other people. I've done all these things and shown mercy and grace, now I want you to do the same thing. By the way, I've shown you what to do because you're recipients of my grace and now you know what you're called to do for me and for one another. To me, I find that great, very refreshing I don't know about you, but I find that very invigorating. I find that very, uh, like, like a, a weight lifted when I think about that God's commands, commands are actually rooted in his great love for me. It's not for me to earn his love. It's because I've already received his love. But God showed his love, 1 John 4, 9 says, that he so much that he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So building from this then, what are God's commands? What are the Ten Commandments? Well, I'm going to read us for us Exodus chapter 20, uh, and you can turn with your Bibles there at Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and as you're doing so, let me just give you just a super brief context of, of where we're at. God has already delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and they've been slaves for over 430 years. They're finally uh, being delivered through his servant Moses and they're being led to the promised land that God promised Abraham long ago. They're wandering through the wilderness and they come to this place called Sinai. It's a mountain. And God says, Moses, I want you to come up top of this mountain. I'm gonna meet with you and I want the people to encamp around this mountain. And, and this is the beginning of where God says, yes, I've delivered you and now I'm gonna show you how to live. I have freed you. Now I'm gonna show you how to stay free. And so Moses meets up with God and he gives him these commands. Look along with me in verse one of Exodus chapter 20 and following. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued, from the, rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. There's kind of an implicit therefore now. You must not have any other God but me. 
You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord rested, blessed the Sabbath day, and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live long, full, a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. By the way, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I know your translations might have slightly different wording. But this morning we're going to discuss briefly the first command. The first command is this, that you must not have any other God but me. Or your translation might say, you must not have any other God beside me or, or before me. I want you to notice something that, that God first reminds Israel, as I kind of pointed out when I began to read this section, before he even goes into all these rules or all these commands, you notice that God says, by the way, I want you to remember what I have done for you. Before we get into these rules to live by, just remember what I have done for you. I am the one who called you out of slavery. I am the one who delivered you. I am the one who's done all these things for you. Your benefits and your satisfaction and your joy is, is really dependent upon me. Therefore, listen to these rules to live by. Now, I think it's important to recognize why this commandment is first. Well, why does God say of all the things he could have said, why is the first thing out of his mouth after he reminds them of his deliverance of his people, why does he say, you must not have any other God before me? Why is, command, is this command number one, do you think? I'll answer for you, don't worry. The reason why God says this first and foremost is because every other command depends or rests on this one command. In other words, this command is the foundation in which all the other commands are built upon. This is the command that, that, that all the commands hinge on the fact that there is only one God. In fact, J.I. Packer says it this way, true religion starts with accepting this command as one's rule for life. This is the essence of true religion, in other words. Why? 
Because heart loyalty is the soil of which holy living grows. Let me say that again. Heart loyalty is the soil in which holy living grows. Holy living is possible only when we are loyal or or when our allegiance is devoted to God alone. We can't become who God has created us to be, which is a holy people, a holy nation, right? Set apart. We cannot become that until we first establish that God is, there is only one God, and he is the God, in this case, in this context, who has delivered us out of Egypt. We cannot, in our day and age, accept or, or expect to become holy as he is holy and seek to be a, a loyal or allegiant to God unless we first establish that, God, you are the one true God, and you are the one that sent your son, and he is the one that died for our sins, and there is no other. Heart loyalty is the soil in which holy living grows, but here's the deal. We are all tempted to adopt other gods. We're all tempted to top, adopt more than one God. We're, we're all tempted toward this, this or, or vulnerable to kind of what we might call a syncretism, right? Syncretism is kind of bringing a, like at least two things together, to cohabitate together. Oftentimes we see this in the, in the missional world, right, where uh, missionaries will go out and they're going to, to other people groups that have a certain version of worship of their God or gods, and then, the, and then Christianity will come in, and we see that oftentimes the temptation is to go, well, we can have both. And we, and we kind of mesh them together, we mash them together, and now we have kind of a version of Christianity as well as a version of our, kind of our, our old way of worship, and actually what that's called is another fault, version of false worship. Syncretism is a kind of the meshing of ideas and philosophies that, uh, that we can bring it together, and we see that Israel was constantly struggling with adopting other false gods or, or syncretism because they, as they went through neighboring nations that had their other ways of worship, instead of going, no, we, are, we have one God, and this is how he calls us to worship, they fell victim to, they were deceived in adopting other ways of practices, and we'll talk more about that next week in the second command, but Israel constantly struggled with adopting more gods and more ideas And of course, God knew they would struggle. He knew that this would be a temptation. He knew we, as human beings, were vulnerable in this way. So, he says, let me say something very important right up front. There's only one God, and it's me. You shall have no other God but me. And why does that matter so much to God? Because God cannot be worshipped rightly, Kevin DeYoung says, if he is worshipped alongside any other. God cannot be worshipped rightly if he is worshipped alongside any other. In other words, our worship of God is tainted, it's distorted, it's corrupted if there's any other competing allegiance And so in essence, what we see God saying by saying, you shall have no other God before me is this. He's basically basically saying, if you worship worship me alone, either you worship me alone or you cannot worship me at all. Either you worship me alone or you really cannot worship me at all. 
And I think one of the clearest examples that describes the kind of loyalty or, or the kind of allegiance that, that God is really describing here, and that is what he's expecting from his people of Israel, what he's expecting of us today, is really the context of marriage. We see that marriage is constantly brought into picture uh, as a way of understanding how we are to relate to God, the kind of relationship, the quality of relationship that we are to have with God and that we are to have with one another. In other words, just as a biblical marriage, I'll say biblical because that's an important qualification, a biblical marriage is a covenant relationship that expects both parties to forsake anyone and everyone else in the same way, we see that God expects we forsake all other gods, all other allegiances, all other loyalties in order to properly and reverently worship Him. That's the kind of relationship that God desires to have with us. Let me illustrate it in this way. Let's just say that your spouse one day just came in and said, Honey, I really love you. And I, I'm so committed to you. And I want you to know I'm there for you. But I also want to introduce you to someone else that I also love very dearly. That I'm also committed to. That I'm also going to spend a lot of time with. And don't worry, I, I still love you. I, I just want you to know that my time with you is going to be, it's going to be different from here on out. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look a little different now because I got other people I'm trying to please and, and other people I'm pursuing. How do you as a spouse receive that kind of news? Oh, that sounds great, honey. Yeah, that sounds really good. Thanks, I still feel equally as loved. I still, I still feel equally as valued. Of course not. No, you'd feel offended. Be like, I don't think so. No, uh-uh, this is not how it works. And yet that is exactly what we are doing when we do not give God the place he deserves in our life. Let's make it a little more personal here. We may not be tempted like the Israelites were, right, to, to adopt lots of false gods, you know, and even next week we'll talk kind of what, what does it mean to have a graven image, and they would adopt the neighboring idols and, and little carved beings and stuff, and they'd put them on their mantle and they'd worship them, and so that's kind of how they kind of fell victim to idolatry, but we may not struggle in that way, but there are other gods, quote-unquote, little g-gods, that that we can be, uh, that we can unintentionally or even intentionally adopt in our lives. First, let me define what I mean by other little gods, right? Little g gods. A god is anything that captures our allegiance. It's anything that captures our loyalty. It's anyone or anything that we place our trust in alongside the one true God. In other words, it's anything that steals our affection that ultimately belongs to our Heavenly Father. And so there's different ways to understand this. Packer has a couple of trilogy statements that I think are very apropos for us this morning. He says, one unholy trinity of gods is called sex, shekels, and stomach. Sex, shekels, and stomach 
our lustful pleasure, money, and food. Or perhaps it could be another kind of an enslaving trio. He said there's pleasure and there's possessions and there's position. Perhaps those are the things that we are also equally desiring of. The fact is there's all kinds of gods. It could be another unholy trinity called sports, sports, and sports. Maybe specifically football, football, football. Again, none of these things are actually wrong, observed rightly. None of these things are wrong when handled properly. They become wrong when our heart is drawn to them in an unholy and a self-serving way. They become unhealthy for us when, when our allegiance begins to, in a sense, compete with our allegiance to God. So any number of things or any number of gods can, can really compete in this way. And it could be academics. It could be, it could be affirmation of people. It can be our work. and It could be politics. It can be any number of things. I mean, the list of potential gods is limitless. And I believe a good, maybe a good litmus test or a good test to identify if we have any unhealthy allegiance towards something or, or someone is to maybe ask questions like this. What do you love most? And if you're like, man, I'm not really sure what I love most, well, let me ask you this. What do you think about most? What you think about most oftentimes is a, is a, a telltale sign of what you love most or, or what controls or influence you most. What do you spend the most time doing? What do you spend the most time or most money on? Questions such as these can, be, can, be, can really serve as a means of, of take, taking honest inventory of your life, and not really with the intent of kind of com- condemning you, but they're, they're, they're helpful so that you can be free. Because once again, we'll come back to that same point, God saves you and he wants you to remain in a saved status. He's freed you and he wants you to understand how to stay free. But here's the good news. Here's the bad news and here's the good news. The bad news is when we go through these, all these commands, the conclusion will be this. You and I have violated every single one of them. You and I are guilty of all of them. And so God says, I've saved you, I've loved you, I've done everything for you. Here's rules so that you can stay free and we violate every single one of them. That's the bad news. We're guilty of God's law. But the good news is this, that we have an advocate and his name is Jesus. And we see that Jesus, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all God's commands. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all God's commands. This is really good news for you and for me, brothers and sisters. I just want you to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law. And the reason why this is good news is because apart from Christ, we, call, we fall victim, we fall guilty 
We are condemned by God, but in Christ we stand free. In Christ, the law of God is written on our hearts. In Christ, that means that God's demand for a singular devotion, for a one mind, a unified or one-mindedness towards Him is fulfilled through His Son, Jesus Christ. So are these commands applicable for you and I today? Were they applicable for all believers are all followers of God. Yes. Are they applicable for us today as a church? Yes. But they are fulfilled in Christ. And that's what you and I must understand as we, as we think about these commandments written long ago. We need to kind of have this understanding in a new covenant sense that they are fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And so think about it in this way. Just as God came down on Mount Sinai and met with his people and says, you must worship me alone. We see about a thousand years later, God comes down on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says about his son Jesus, This is my son. Listen to him. So, as New Covenant Christians, as people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, the way in which you and I follow through, the way in which you and I fulfill, the way in which you and I obey these commands is when we give our full and total allegiance to Jesus Christ. Why does Jesus matter so much? Well, as Hebrews says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Paul says in Colossians 1, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the question I have for you, brothers and sisters, this morning is this. For something, just as something just to kind of help you kind of percolate and to kind of think on and reflect on more fully. It's this. Have you given your wholehearted allegiance to God? Have you given your wholehearted allegiance to God? Does Jesus have first place in your life? Well, as I've already said, and I'll repeat for the sake of conclusion, true freedom is not experienced in the absence of rules. Now, true freedom is experienced by keeping God's rules. And it all begins with worshiping the one true God and understanding that there is no other. So in the words of Packer, I think he summarizes or concludes it very well when he says this, let us wake up, let us enthrone our God, and let us live. May we not fall victim and, and, and be complacent in a state of slumber, but may we wake up and throne our God and understand that that is the place in which we truly live. This is why Jesus came. This is why he came. He came to give us life and to have it or to live it fully. Well, Father, I just want to say right now that we love you.
We love you so much and we know that we can only love you because you first loved us. And Father, we even now we are reminded that you give us rules not to, to take our life, not, to, not necessarily to, to ruin our lives, not to, to strip our joy, but Father, you give us rules so that we might truly live. You love us enough to give us commands to live by because you are the author, you are the creator of our life. And so, Father, I just pray that as we, as we go through this study, as we, re, as we reflect further even after, as we leave from here today, Father, may we reflect more fully on what it means to make you our Lord and our Savior. Help us as New Testament Christians, as, as people living under a new covenant, initiated and bought by your Son, Jesus Christ. May we know what it means to make you the one true God by the way in which we surrender and abide with Christ. We realize that Jesus, that it's all about you. That you are King and that you are Lord and that you are God. It's in Christ alone that we have our life and our hope and our fulfillment. So Father, if we have forgotten that, if we have wavered, if we have kind of been distracted from that, may we come back to this necessary point of reference and live fully for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.